This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey nerds, welcome to another episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. Just a real quick introduction for you. Uh, Today is a recording of the interview that Jill and I did with S.F. Kosa, who wrote The Quiet Girl, which is the current big library read title. Uh, If you haven't borrowed it yet on Libby, you can do so from now until July 12th without any wait lists or holds. About 20,000 libraries are participating in the big library read, so chances are you'll see it front and center when you open up Libby. Uh, It's a psychological thriller, and this conversation was a whole bunch of fun. We did it on July 7th, uh, live in front of a whole bunch of people on Zoom. Still so weird to, you know, say live and on Zoom. And But yes, it was a a wonderful event. We took some Q&A from the audience, and then also Jill and I did our own questions um, with Sarah, which is SF Cosa is the pen name for the author. Um, But she's a clinical psychologist in her... um, in her, I guess, day job, if you want to call it, but she's written about two dozen books at this point. Um, and this was the first of her psychological thrillers. So there's definitely a through line between what she does in her day during in her day to day and what she does as a writer for this particular title. Just a really interesting conversation. We get into um, writing about traumatic things, but also um, just her writing process in general and uh, why she wanted to do this when she already had a very busy life being a clinical psychologist. So Really good stuff. Really fun. She's a fascinating human being, and this was a blast. Um, if you are participating in the Big Library Read, you can go to biglibrary.com. There's a discussion board there, and also if you just use the hashtag Big Library Read, all one word, um, anywhere on social media, you can have a chance to win a tablet and a signed copy of the book as well. So lots of really cool stuff there. Um, and then just because it just went up, I want to tell you guys about it. If you go to shop.overdrive.com, um, I know that you guys are listening to this because you're professional book nerds fans, but we're assuming you're also very likely Libby fans or using Libby. Um, there's some brand new swag on the Overdrive shop. We've got new hoodies and crew necks and long sleeve shirts and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, so that's at shop.overdrive.com. And just as a reminder, anything you purchase there, 100% of the proceeds go to the American Library Association's Office of Diversity. So you can get some fun stuff and also know that you're uh, you're doing something wonderful for libraries. I was reminded of this because I'm literally drinking coffee out of my Libby coffee mug at the moment. So, okay, that's about everything. I'm not going to keep you guys any longer. Um, I am going to let you get to this conversation with SF Cosa, a big library special episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Uh, I'll do some quick introductions and then we will um, we will get going so for those of you who are just seeing me and Jill for the first time and have no idea who we are uh, we are the co-hosts of the professional book nerds podcast which is the podcast presented by overdrive uh, overdrive is the company that is putting on the big library read program which is how I'm guessing you joined us today at least I'm hoping if not you just randomly found a zoom we're gonna have a lovely uh, you're gonna get to hear a lovely chat. Uh, Jill and I do episodes on Mondays and Thursdays where you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get podcasts. We do author interviews every Monday and we do book recommendations across various themes and ideas that we usually come up with at the last minute every Thursday. Uh, and the reason that we are all hanging out here today is because the Big Library program selected Sarah Fine's newest book, which she wrote as SF Cosa. And I'm guessing you guys have all read The Quiet Girl or are part right through The Quiet Girl or haven't started it yet, in which case we'll try to be not too spoilery, but the library program has been going on for about a week and a half now, so I'm guessing you probably got it going with it. So first off, Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is fantastic. Yeah, we're super excited. Absolutely. Um, And so for the format for everyone who has joined, 
you should have on the bottom a Q&A where you can ask questions. If you want to type questions that you might have for Sarah, uh, Joe and I will get to those a little bit later. We're going to start by asking some questions that we've prepared and also by pulling some questions that we took off of our discussion board, which you can join at biglibraryread.com. Um, Jill, do you want to kick us off or would you like me to? I can. Um, I know Adam, you know, said you all are probably have already read the book or partway through it, but for those who maybe have just started the Big Library Read and haven't, um, started the book yet can you maybe give our listeners and everyone on this call a brief introduction to the quiet girl uh, so the quiet girl <laughs> is my first um psychological thriller or psychological suspense novel and it is about alex whose wife mina is a romance author uh who suddenly disappears after a fight and he goes to find her at her writing retreat her writing call cottage in Provincetown and discovers that she's left her wedding rings behind and is gone. And so he's determined to find her. Uh, and then the rest of the story is about how he does it and about how uh, a girl named Layla, who doesn't have memories of uh, the recent past, uh, figures into that and what truths she might hold in terms of where Mina went. So for people who may be somewhat familiar, this is, first off, this is not your first book. You've written almost two dozen at this point, I believe. <laughs> yes, all in different, uh, a different genre. I have written, as Sarah Fine, I've written uh, a dozen young adult novels and uh, nine uh, adult novels, but they're all in the speculative fiction realm. So fantasy, urban fantasy, and sci-fi. Yeah. So, so what made you want to start writing now start writing psychological thrillers, which is a thing connected to your day-to-day -day life, but what, what made you want to write these stories, you know, now after writing so many different types of genres? Yeah. So I think that for me as a writer, I, I write the things I'm passionate about at the time. And at the time I started creative writing, which for me sort of came out of the blue about 10 years ago. I hadn't written creatively to that point. I hadn't taken any classes. I had never envisioned myself as a writer. Um, but at that time, when I wanted to start writing, I was, I was just interested in writing fantasy and romance. And then I think as my career evolved, and I, I really enjoyed that for a number of years. And as you said, and uh, since 2012, uh, I, I had 21 of those books come out and The Quiet Girl is my 22nd, I believe. Um, I just, my interests changed and I had to follow those. And I think actually, if you look at some of the young adult sci-fi novels um, and particularly the last one that I, I that I had published called Uncanny, it actually is, even though it's a sci-fi novel, it actually is also kind of a psychological thriller um, about you know, a girl whose sister dies mysteriously and uh, the, you know, it's sort of about how uh, they figure out what happened, except that it's a hundred years from or 50 years from now. And everybody has like implanted uh, like recording devices slash phones slash entertainment devices in their head. So, you know, it has a sci-fi twist to it, but, mm. you know, by then my interests were already moving toward the psychological thriller type genre. So then I just decided to make the full jump and write in the real world with no magic and well, hopefully some magic, but just not like actual magic. It's a different kind of magic. It That's right. Counts. It counts. Um, you know, did did the way you write or like your writing habits change in any way, switching from those like fantasy books to a psychological thriller? That's a great question. I um it definitely did because when I think of my, my psychological thriller writing definitely taps a different part of my brain, sort of the puzzle um, aspect. So I get really excited about designing a very intricate puzzle for the reader because thriller readers are really savvy. And, you know, that there have been, there are so many good thrillers out there uh, that, you know, you really, you have to be on your game to design something that's properly entertaining 
for a really savvy, experienced reader. My fantasy work um, has felt to me always a lot more expansive and sort of free, like, let me see what I can pull out of my hat today. Like, I will invent a magic system, an underworld, an afterlife. Like, I will, you know, sort of invent magical decks of cards or a new kind of magic. Like, I'll, you know, I think that, um, so it's just sort of a different piece of my brain, sort of that more expansive, uh, free part, as opposed to, I mean, and there are definitely moments when I'm writing psychological thrillers that I feel that as well, but it feels like you have to be a lot more like buttoned down and precise in terms of the details you're putting in or things like that. Um, not that you don't have to, you know, do that in fantasy, but I, to me, that comes a little later. Whereas with my thrillers, I feel like I'm, you know, sort of working it out very carefully and then writing it according to my plan. Yeah, that's that's a good point because with fantasy, you're you're making it all up. Like the world building is all whatever you want it to be. The reality of that world is whatever you want it to be. But with thrillers, and I say this as someone who is a big reader and likes to consider herself savvy, so with like some you know certain ones, you have to be able to both surprise them, but also give them an an ending or a twist or whatever that feels earned. And that's really hard to do. Yes. You can't just like pull something out and be like, this is my twist. And have it be something that doesn't feel like you've laid the groundwork or made it plausible. Um, Because that's really disappointing when you invest your emotional energy in a book. You want there to be a good payoff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. just to like also this isn't even going to be a question just agreeing with both of you like I'm thinking I also read a lot of thrillers and you're absolutely right there's this fine line to walk because thriller readers they want to get to that last page without being like oh I figured out this ending but at the same time you have to write an ending that they couldn't figure out that if they looked close enough they could have figured out yes right. yes so what you don't want is for the the reader to see the author's hand like covering their eyes or like reaching up and like sort of covering a detail. As a reader myself, that that is, you know, something when I can detect that something's just being hidden for the sake of being hidden, um, then I start to be like, come on, man, like just, you know, move the hand away. Let me see what's going on. Um, so you, so when you do it, of course, you're as an author, you're sort of, you're sort of doing it. It's hard to know if you're succeeding when you're writing. Like a lot of times for me, I'm like, this seems so obvious, but that's because like, I already know everything that's happening and I, it feels obvious to me. So I depend on, you know, my editor, my other readers to tell me. Um, And I would also want them to tell me if I'm like, seem to be deliberately concealing something that shouldn't, that I should find another way to tell that piece of the story um, that may not reveal it, but that also isn't obviously concealing it. I have to be more clever in other words. Yeah. But along those lines, because I was kind of scrolling through the Q&A and I just and I scrolled through the discussion board earlier this morning, I'm going to keep this vague for people who haven't read all of it. <laughs> I feel like Jill's laughing because she knows where I'm going with this. I'll, I will simply ask it in this way because people are asking it in much more specific ways. Did you know the ending when you started writing the book? Um, I thought, I, I almost always do because I, I tend to outline and plot Um, But as I was thinking about it, I definitely thought, are there different ways to do this that feel not cliched, that feel right? And the truth is, in the end, I decided, no, I I think that this, you know, the way I bring this in for a landing needs to be the way I do it. Um, But I definitely did a lot of thinking about that. It wasn't a casual decision. If that is that very yeah. <laughs> I just have seen so many questions. Don't be scared if you have you know, this yeah. person. I, I just, just like I just saw so many questions already, uh, both here and on the discussion board. Like, did you know this person was going to have this ending? I'm being as vague as possible. Like yeah. every single one's like, what about this person? And what about did you have an idea of this at the beginning? I'm just like, I feel like that's like a those and you know and sometimes you know when I when I outline when I plan things do change I feel like you have to be flexible because as you write the story the characters reveal themselves and sometimes you hit upon better ways of telling your story better ways of um you know or a better twist or something like you always have to be or you know I always try to be flexible about that but usually I know where I'm going I'm not like some writers are you know the the pansters who you know are pantsers 
who just, you know, write by the seat of the pants and kind of, and I know some very accomplished writers who write that way. It's just not the way that I write. That's not my style. <laughs> both serve a purpose. Both serve Absolutely. A purpose. <laughs> and they can both get the job done. It's just a matter of how it fits with your particular uh, orientation and preference. For sure. And again, going back to like trying to keep things, um, I imagine like trying to, to be a pantser as a thriller writer would be difficult. I'm sure there are thriller writers who do. I know, but... I know a very good one. Like Carter Wilson is a very accomplished thriller writer who totally just like, he's like, let me make some things happen. <laughs> I mean, that might be fun though. You're sort of discovering it along the way with, yeah. you know, but as you're writing he figures, it. He figures if he surprises himself, he'll surprise the reader, but he also relies heavily on his editors to, you know, like, so, yeah. and as do I, I mean, obviously, but um, yeah, it's just a different way of getting to a good outcome. Mm-hmm. I think Harlan Coben told us that too. He's like, yeah, I just keep asking myself like, what if? And then I see, yeah. where, and if I surprise myself, I can surprise the reader. But exactly like what you said, Sarah, it's like, yeah. you also have editors that are like, okay, Harlan, well, that thing didn't, it's not, it's not possible to make X happen over right, here. Right, right, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for people who might not know, you also have a day job, which is, I don't want to say connected to what this book is about because that makes it sound extremely dark, but do you want to talk about what, what your day job is and maybe kind of how it connects to this type of writing? Sure, absolutely. So um, I am a clinical psychologist. Uh, I worked as a clinical psychologist for many years before I was a writer um, for, I guess, about, well, I, I mean... Yeah, it was many years. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say how many. Uh, but um, so I do spend a lot of time thinking about uh, how people respond to and recover from issues of trauma, et cetera. But my specialty is actually working with very young children and families. So I don't uh, see a lot of, I don't have adult clients. Um, I work with very small people um, and their parents. So obviously I work with adults, but not as my clients, Um, which made it interesting. You know, a lot of my writing, including, you know, I've done some self-published romances that were very focused on mental health issues. Um, A lot of my early books covered issues um, of, you know, trauma and, you know, albeit in the fantasy world. Um, And so when I decided to do psychological thrillers, it you know, my interest is in, you know, how people respond to these intense, uh, you know, sort of psychological threats or, you know, aspects of trauma. And I definitely felt the need to consult with colleagues and have them check over my work because it is very important to me actually that I, I have like a couple of red lines when I, when I write because of my profession. And, you know, one of them is that anytime I am discussing mental illness it not be romanticized, trivialized, minimized, or like sort of used in a way that I feel is cheap or would disrespect anybody who has lived experience uh, with a mental illness. And uh, the other thing that I work very hard to make sure of is that any mental health professional that I describe in my book behaves in a professional manner. Um, because I certainly want to depict my field in a way that would never discourage somebody who wanted to get help from getting help. Um, so that's, you know, sort of how it, some of the ways that my profession touches on the way I write or tell my stories, especially when they're set in this like contemporary real world. I imagine that because you work um with children and then you sort of like write adult characters, that helps with some separation between your work life and your writing life, since you're not really writing in that same sphere that you work in. Yeah, I think that, you know, I actually put this on my website, um, sort of a question about, uh, you know, would I ever write about a client or anything like that? And I put that on there because I wanted to say like, absolutely 100% no, I would never do that. That's like a major ethical violation, obviously. Um, But I do think, like you said, it does sort of help that, you know, all my clients are, you know, I I work with kids who are having like disruptive behavior problems, feeding problems, issues with sleep and toilet training. And like, you know, that's really, you know, my bread and butter is some pediatric, pediatric psychology and pediatric issues. Um, And so it's really not doing individual therapy with adults going through some of the stuff that the adults in my book go through. 
Um, so, I, I mean, I have worked with kids um, in the full age range, uh, but mostly, again, as at that, at that stage in my career, when I, was, when I was doing that, I was doing a lot of supervision and management and wasn't working directly with clients. So I have some like sort of abstract, you know, connection to things, but I would never, you know, depict something that specific in a case or in a novel um, connected to a case that I'm familiar with. There's... Oh, go ahead, Joe. No, I didn't have anything. Uh, okay. Um, there's this like concept of, I've been thinking, I listened to a few interviews with Michael Pollan like this week, who's um, writes mostly about nature and food and all these things. And his most recent book is about like psychedelic drugs and kind of like dispelling. Yeah, I haven't read it, but I'm familiar. Yeah. yeah. Like this, and he, like the reason he wrote it was basically because he wanted to dispel all of the like negative false narratives about psychedelic drugs and how they can, in when used properly, Right, with the microdosing. Yeah, like be very safe and actually beneficial for people who need these types of things. And I was thinking about it and connected to because every like review, not every, but a lot of reviews of your book and books similar to it say things like, well, I don't want to read about this type of trauma or like they'll, they'll put trigger warnings, which I think are very good and necessary for books that have things that have traumatic experiences in them. But I also think that when books are written like yours from a, where you have a clinical background and you can address them responsibly, I think it's good to have books like this. Like I'm just, what are your thoughts on books that contain traumatic experiences and things that admittedly, like, I still think it's important to have the content and trigger warnings for people just maybe they don't want to read about certain things. Like what are your thoughts in general and in seeing that and like how to handle it with care as an author? Yeah, so um, I think a number of things. Like, I, I agree with you that the people should have the opportunity to say, like, nope, like maybe not for maybe this isn't for me. In the same way, like I choose, like I don't watch horror movies. I don't feel that they're good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like the way that the places my mind goes when I watch them. So I, you know, make the choice. Like that's not my genre. <laughs> I don't go there. So I, I absolutely think people should um, be, you know, empowered to find books, you know, so which is why I never, I would never object to any like sort of reviewer, any, however people decide to like sort of say, hey, there's a, this has some content that uh, maybe you don't want to expose yourself to. Uh, from the writing end of it, I don't think that we should shy away from depicting aspects of human experience. Um, But I do think that it's important uh, for those of us who write about it to think very carefully about how how we do discuss those things. Um, And, you know, like I I was recently asked in another interview, like what what is the most rewarding uh, achievement you've had since your first book was published? And uh, what what I quickly what quickly came to mind is the emails I get from readers who um, say things like, I went through something similar to what you wrote about. Um, Or, you know, I wrote a romance novel that uh, featured where the romantic lead uh, had bipolar disorder. And I wrote about it in a really realistic way um, that for some people didn't seem romantic, but it was important for me not to romanticize it, to show that you can have a love despite, you know, dealing with these, you know, serious mental health issues. And so I think that for, for writers, it's important to do your homework to, you know, and if that means that you need to, you know, talk to people with lived experience, you know, read other books that do this well, um, and think very carefully and as empathically, you know, as is possible about if somebody read this, uh, how would they feel? And you can't manage, you know, readers can feel how they feel um, and have a range of reactions uh, to the content of your writing, but you always want to make sure that you're respectful of an experience. And um, that's why I say, you know, it's important for me when I write about issues, um, any kind of issue related to trauma, mental illness, uh, substance abuse, not to trivialize, minimize, um, or romanticize. That's what I find particularly important. Um, something that has come up, actually, a couple people have mentioned this in our, um, Q and A. So again, if you are watching this and you have a question, you can 
um, at the bottom of the screen, there's a little Q&A button you can add it. But a couple of people have mentioned your use of both past and present tense. And um, I wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit about why, like the decision behind shifting tenses like that or the, having the, the different timelines. Um, gosh, I don't want to sort of spoil it. There's <laughs> That's a fair. That's fair. <laughs> uh, why there are different narrative like structures or you know um so alex who is really the the reader's window right alex is the main character who is trying to solve this mystery he's trying to figure out what's going on where his wife went what happened to her um you know and and so his narrative and i and i do enjoy writing in present tense i find there's an urgency there um that i happen to enjoy. And I've written several books uh, in present tense. Um, and then the other half of the narrative, which is past tense, is I would, I will just say, I would say it's a standard structure, standard tense to, in which to tell a story. Um, and so it's a legitimate choice for an author, whoever she may be. <laughs> no, that's, that is, that is there are plot reasons. Good enough answer. For reasons. Me. That's, yeah. I could have just said that. Um, <laughs> there are reasons. Someone else asked something along the lines of, and I, and I couldn't find it ex specifically. So I will just ask kind of my own version of it is um, Did you struggle with or maybe enjoy writing aspects of a person who is an author in the book as an author? Like, were there ways that you kind of went out of your way to make sure that said author was different than I believe that the way they said it was the author of parentheses you of the book right um well in some I mean I think Mina is quite a bit more successful than I am as an author I mean I gave her enough royalties to buy a house like in a very nice part of Provincetown <laughs> I gave that to her um <laughs> she's She's more, uh, more successful than I at this point. Um, <laughs> maybe someday. Uh, so I, I didn't think too much about it. I didn't, I mean, I didn't want to make her exactly like me. I don't write about myself, but this book is funny because it's the first book that I've set like straight up in the real world. And I did borrow, and I've seen a couple of questions from readers about like, what are, you know, are there autobiographical details in this mm -hmm. book, which is fair if it's a book involving a writer. I mean, the truth is I borrowed superficial, all sorts of superficial details from my own life. I mean, fortunately for me, that's where the similarity ends. Um, but I, I did, you know, bar my husband works in biotech, you know, I, I got the idea for the novel when I was visiting my in-laws in Truro. And I would like to say for the record that they are nothing like <laughs> Mina's parents. <laughs> and they in no way resemble. <laughs> but, we were, good but they were vacationing there. And, you know, it was there that I got the idea. We, we had been spending a lot of time in Provincetown in Truro, and that's where I got the idea. Um, so, you know, like some of those superficial details definitely made it into, uh, the book, but I think that, that I, to me as a writer, I think I felt that that's where those similarities ended. So yeah. hopefully. Okay. I just, I just love your disclaimer. You're like, they're not like that. They're not like, no, that. I don't. <laughs> yeah. I want to be very clear about that. I mean, I guess actually that was going to be one of my next questions and something that other people have asked. Could you get, go a little bit more detail, like to specifically like how you got the idea for the book? Sure. I, um, I remember the moment it came to me and this is, I think a demonstration of the difference between like, like the spark of an idea and then a, the sort of full bloom of an idea because I was sitting uh, on the bay side of uh, Truro. Uh, so, you know, Cape Cod, Truro, and then like sort of looking in the bay. So it's much calmer than the ocean side. Um, and I was just sitting, you know, sort of staring out at the water. And uh, I sort of thought like, what if a writer we're here. What if, what if a writer disappeared from here? And what if she left some clue about where she'd gone? 
And that sounds dark, right? Like I, I was not personally thinking of disappearing uh, and leaving clues, but I did have, you know, I have ideas all the time, just like little pops of like, oh, you know, this situation reminds me of like, what if this happened? So I have all of those things, but it took like, that was a very primitive little pop of an idea. But then some of the ideas that I have sort of take hold and start to churn. And it became, you know, obviously much more, much more fleshed out, much more um, detailed as the idea came into full bloom of like, you've got this guy and he's like, it's the most important week of his career. Lots of stuff is going on for him. And then his wife disappears. And then like, it just gets really weird from there. <laughs> um, but, but it all started like if that, in that moment of looking out at the water and thinking, what if somebody just disappeared from here and left some clues? Um, I've seen this a number of times in our Q&A down here and then also on the discussion board. Uh, people have a lot of questions about fugue states, which is a real I, is a real thing. I can like partially yes. answer that, but that's the extent to which I feel comfortable discussing it. So can you go into maybe like, um, maybe just like a medical explanation of what a fugue state is and then just kind of like what what it means and then someone also asked on the discussion board if you've ever personally known anyone who's experienced this yeah so dissociative fugue it used to be called psychogenic fugue i think in like the dsm-3 and then it became uh more properly lumped in with the uh dissociative disorders uh is uh really one of the more i think it is like the extreme of uh of the dissociative disorders. So when I say dissociation, what I mean is that's a sort of mental experience where somebody sort of like tunes out of uh, what's going on in the immediate present. So there are very mild and normal forms of dissociation like daydreaming. Daydreaming is a very mild and completely you know, typical uh, form of dissociation. But there are other kinds of dissociation, um, most often in response to trauma experiences, where it, is, it becomes a kind of survival mechanism, where the brain is just like, we're going to wall this off. Um, and so you sort of step away. It's sort of like, you know, sort of step out of your, uh, you know, personal body or mind and just sort of fade out for a little while. And there are all sorts of different forms of this. Um, but uh, dissociative fugue as an extreme case is some people, and again, this is usually triggered by some form of trauma, actually just walk right out of their own lives they um, seem to forget who they are. Uh, and in some cases, sort of start a life with a new identity in a way, um, or they'll, you know, give a new, a different name and like sort of find a way to get along. Um, what I show with Layla's experience, which is that she it's not like she just like has a full identity as this new person or anything like that. Like what's with what's going on for her. That's not what is going on for a person who's dissociating. It's all very hazy. So your mind is just like, we're going to step away and come over here now. And when usually there's a spontaneous recovery and the person recovers their memories of uh, what happened up until the point when they sort of stepped out of the li their life and entered this dissociative fugue state. But what doesn't happen, and um, this was important to me to you know, depict uh, accurately, what, you, what doesn't happen is you don't recover memories of what happens in the dissociative fugue state. Those are just not there. It's, it's like not accessible. Mm -hmm. um, so this is something that is fairly rare. I have never personally met or worked with somebody who has um, experienced a dissociative fugue. It's sometimes hard to even spot it when it's going on. Um, but I, again, because I don't work with adults, um, I, I don't, I've never worked in like an adult psychiatric hospital or, you know, I've worked in children's psychiatric hospitals, but these things are more common, I would say in adults. Um, so once it happens, you know, a person is sort of left to cope with this like gap in their experience. It's not, it's, 
usually a one-time experience as based on what I've read. It's not something that people enter a fugue state over and over and over again, though I've read at least one case where that does, that has probably, that's probably what happened to this person, but usually it's like a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. But again, it's, it's very rare. Um, that's probably, that's probably a lot more detail than you guys want. Oh, that's great. I, like I said, I, I think a lot of the amount of people I've seen asking that question, there is, is very yeah. much an interest in knowing about it. So not think it's helpful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I imagine, you know, that required a lot of research and that's one of those things you want to make sure you get right because it is so rare, but for those who are familiar with it, they're going to have a lot of, um, they're going to want to see it represented in a way that is accurate. Well, and, uh, and again, I think there are, what's more common is dissociative experiences in response to trauma that are less extreme, that are distressing, confusing, um, and just a, another symptom of a trauma experience um, and post-traumatic stress, uh, but um, that is just not the sort of full, I forgot who I was and walked out of my life level of uh, intensity. Um, but I, it is important to get it right. I did, um, do a lot of reading about it. Um, and I also, I have a, a colleague and mentor who works with adults, uh, and including adults with a severe mental illness. And I, I made sure to have him go through it and give me feedback, uh, so that I could have a, you know, sort of respectful portrayal of not only, uh, what the experience might be like, but also the treatment. Um, because when, if I, if I do write about psychological treatment in my books, I want to make sure that I'm showing like high quality, uh, likely to, you know, the, you know, the, based on the evidence we have the most likely to be helpful kind of treatment. <laughs> I don't just make that. Um, there's, a, I'll combine a few questions I've seen. Uh, one is how long did this take you to write? And then to kind of pair it in with that, like, how do you keep your I don't want to call it work-life balance because I feel like at this point it's like work-work balance, but one of them is writing work. And one, like, how do you balance your life to find time to write? And then how long did this this story take for you to put together? Um, I would say this book took me somewhere like maybe about three months to write. All told, I I, I tend to write um, on on any day that I I do psychology work. I don't write because I usually I, I I don't I don't tend to be able to split my attention very well mm-hmm. so um at, what I do want to say and clarify is that at the time I was writing The Quiet Girl I was actually writing full-time so I didn't have to worry about it then um but it, in uh times where I do and where I'm seeing clients I just those are days that I don't write uh and so when I have writing days it's like all right let's sit down and I will write, uh, you know, 5,000 to 8,000 words in a day. Uh, and so I tend to write very quickly and, uh, probably slightly less quickly with thrillers than with fantasy, but I do like my blocks of time. I'm not a person who just sits down and writes for 45 minutes or an hour a day. I tend to, on my writing days, I want to write for four to six hours at least and get a lot done in that time <laughs> that's just how it works for me and then I'll have days where I don't write at all I'm laughing because I know Jill how you write and I tend to be more like Sarah and I know you do like writing sprints a lot and you're very good at those and just laughing because I feel like I'm like you Sarah like I need like four hours and I need some like rain sounds playing on my on my speaker and I need a glass of whiskey and like I need to just like <laughs> stare at my computer whereas Jill I know you're very good at like the the short chunks like okay I'm gonna do this for a half hour and well I do sprints too because I do what I find is if I have a big block of time I sometimes fade out and that is break it out yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that's when I uh I chat my good friend Lydia Kang and I'm like hello lady what you working on today and then we will time each other we'll be like how distracted are you right now? Really distracted? Okay, let's go 20 minutes. And so we will like time each other and do 20 minutes and report word count back. I find that kind of accountability, especially when I'm struggling and sort of foggy or I'm tired and I'm just trying to push myself through an afternoon. It is so energizing to just have a writing buddy who you're like, 
let's go. Oh, you're feeling pretty good. Let's keep going. Let's go 45 minutes this time. And so it, it helps a lot. I, I hope she won't mind me calling her out like this live during a zoom call, but this Sydney and I do this, actually, we will like text each other and be like, do you want, do you have like 10 minutes, just if whatever you, time. If, if yeah. you weren't going to say it, I was going to say it. So <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. We do that. We do that often. We'll like, yeah. Sometimes it's spontaneous. Sometimes it's like planning ahead, but yeah, every once in a while I'll get like a text from her at like nine o'clock. Like, do you want to do a writing sprint? I'm like, sure, let's do it. Yeah. Wow. And sometimes yeah, even even if you have a friend, like what Lydia will do, she'll I'll be like, I'm struggling. And she'll she'll be doing something else. She'll be like, okay, I'm setting a timer for you. You know, like even if she's not working. That's amazing. Because it's it's like I just have to get this done. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes the struggle is real. <laughs> I was I was laughing because I didn't know if Jill or Sarah were gonna be like I knew that Jill and Sydney do like that type of thing you know and I was like I wonder if anyone's gonna say the thing that I oh, am yeah. laughing about oh yeah <laughs> so something I'm a little bit curious about and it might be because you you mentioned how the characters that you write aren't really that connected in any way to the the people that you help on a daily basis in in your day job um quote unquote but I'm wondering if for you writing about traumatic events feels catharsis like cathartic in any way if because of how familiar even if it's not people you're directly working with you're so familiar with these aspects of life because of your coworkers and what they are going through and did, does it feel cathartic for you to be able to write and maybe have a little bit of control over the narrative Oh, that's such a great question and a great point. I don't know that I've actually thought about it like that, but I do think that, I mean, writing, and this is why I encourage anybody who has the slightest inclination to write to just do so, regardless of whether what you write will ever have an audience or not. It is a wonderful way of processing experience. And um, I don't know if this directly answers your question, but I can look back on all of my books and see that in each one, in hindsight, I can see that I was processing a certain aspect of my own experience uh, through that kind of story that I decided to tell. Um, and so I think in that way, it is, you know, one thing that we humans like need is a sense of mastery, a sense of, you know, to, to whatever extent. And I think you can, to a healthy extent, develop a sense of like control. Like, I understand this. I you know, I can comprehend it and to some extent I can manage it. So I think that I'm not sure that I specifically write about trauma to, for that purpose, but there's always an aspect of seeking further understanding, mastery, and I'm certainly drawn to those topics, you know, for a reason. Uh, and I, you know, so it's quite possible that what you're asking me, the answer is simply yes. <laughs> <laughs> um someone in our chat here in the q a has is mentioned um your use of a pseudonym you know you you have previously written under sarah you are now sf cosa um so just sort of talking a little bit about that decision and you know how how the name came to be sure um so there are two reasons uh, that I am writing under SF Cosa. One is that because it's such a clear-cut genre change that um, we thought it made sense just to have a pseudonym because all of my other books are like urban fantasy romance, you know, sort of young adult sci-fi and fantasy. It just, it's so, it seemed so unrelated, like the, the readership seemed different. So it seemed uh, like a good time to have a pseudonym. Um, and, uh, I actually got, I got married and changed my name. So, <laughs> so basically my name is Sarah Fine. Now my name is Sarah Fine Cosa. Uh, and so SF Cosa seemed to be the thing that made sense. <laughs> Uh, what good a reason. answer yeah what a clear cut and straightforward reason <laughs> um but no, uh, for the people who uh the, the people who've asked that question I know that there's also um from like a 
a library, just like a book searching standpoint. It's also, especially for someone who writes books that um, could be appropriate for young adults or children versus a book like this that is very much not. Um, it, it can be something also helpful for like, if you have children who are looking for a, a author that they know, and if they happen to see a book that they assume is for them and they were to see The Quiet Girl, they very much would be like, oh no, uh, 14 year old, maybe don't read this just yet. But, well, but the, th the problem is for under Sarah Fine, I have both adult books and that's, that's a good point. So I kind of, I probably should have used a pseudonym for my adult book because I do definitely, because I have teenagers and I definitely, as they've, you know, over the last decade gone from like elementary age um, into adolescence and have expressed some interest in reading my books, sometimes they'll like pop up with a title and I'll be like, maybe not that one. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, put the, put down the, put down reliquary and pick up the imposter queen. Yeah. <laughs> That's more appropriate for you. Um, two kind of <laughs> related ones. One, this one will be really quick, but what was the name of the romance novel dealing with bipolar disorder? Um, it was called Spiral. Spiral. Okay. That's, that was for Lynn. I know you asked that question. And then something else that Jill and I were going to ask about anyway, but someone else asked in here. So might as well. Um, are you working on another mystery slash thriller at the moment? Well, I am. I mean, I have uh, The Night We Burned, uh, which is my next thriller that comes out in about a month. It was say, yeah, really close to a month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, um, yeah. So that's, that's my next one. Um, and uh, that one is about a fact checker at an online uh, news magazine who decides she needs to change the facts of a story she's working on to conceal her uh, connection to a cult massacre that took place 20 years before. I like all of these words. <laughs> that's, that's um, it really, and all again, of them in like yeah. one sentence, that is everything I need. Oh, yay. Um, yeah, that one was really fun because again, it started with the, the initial piece of that idea was, you know, without delving too far into anything, I, in the last several years, um, have left me sort of looking at news and truth and, you know, objectivity and accuracy and facts and really thinking about that. And so I had um, this, I was like, well, what if a fact checker just started, you know, changing some facts? Why would she do that? And um, I don't know how exactly I managed to, how, I, you know, why the answer is, well, a cult, of course. Um, but... Jill. Maybe that's just, I, I just, you know, why not? Um, so I invented a cult, which was super interesting to like think through and also like pretty brutal because I did a lot of reading about cults, cult psychology, different, the history of various cults and all of that. But um, it was a really interesting and fun book to put together because this is a character who's trying desperately to stay one step ahead of the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna like take over now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, as just, Adam, as Adam knows, I I have a I have a deep fascination and interest, um, in cults. Um, and actually, I had just earlier this year, time has no meaning. Um, uh, the the YA author Courtney um Summer wrote a book called The Project, which is also about um a cult, and she and I talked about her experiences, sort of like creating a cult and what that's right. like and all of the research that goes into it because it's 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 a tricky topic like you have to yeah the research is brutal just having to read about all of that stuff it is and I think that the key task for an author who's writing about that is to make it to really show how somebody like I think the the really common belief uh, is that people who join cults are gullible and weak-minded uh, and like like what they, it just doesn't make sense. Like why wouldn't they just walk away and leave when things get bad? And um, obvi obviously that's, that's not actually what happens. Um, there are incredibly accomplished, intelligent, well-educated people uh, who find themselves in cults um, like, you know, Nexium or the Rajneesh Puram or, you know, like there, if you, if you watch some of the documentaries or read about them, these are people who know their stuff and they're smart. It's just that step-by-step step, 
you know, you connect with a leader, it, it provides an explanation that really resonates with you. You have good people around you that who you like, and um, it becomes really hard to disentangle yourself um, when uh, one of these high control groups, when you find yourself inside of it, because they find ways of cutting you off from the real world in a way that's pretty mind twisting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it's important if you're writing about that to sort to show that in a way that has empathy for the people who find themselves in those circumstances while at the same time showing like how bad and extreme things can get uh yeah in those circumstances so for sure yeah cult leaders are always sort of very charismatic and they have a way of kind of adapting mm-hmm. their pitch basically depending on who they're talking to to kind of oh, figure out what what will be the thing that will get the person in? Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, I mean, people from like Jim Jones or Charles Manson, like they were very uh, explicit when talking about this, about how they chose people with specific needs and vulnerabilities um, who would be good to fold in um, Mm -hmm. sometimes because of the things they have to offer, but sometimes because of certain psychological needs that will make them, you know, and then they sort of push in those vulnerable areas until, Mm -hmm. you know, they get the result they want. Yeah, there's, yeah. Um, last year, I interviewed an author, Mikel Jolet, who's also a musician, and he wrote a book called Hollywood Park because he was born into the Sinanon cult. And oh, yeah. when he was very, very young, his mom escaped with him and his brother. But even, and that's sort the whole book's kind of about their like transition and trying to figure out life. And like, even when you get out of a cult, um, it can be very hard to figure out life beyond I love that we've just transitioned now this is like a full just like we're just now we're talking about podcasts this is what's happening um so I will say we tend to kind of wrap up with one last question for all of our authors which is what do you hope readers take away from reading this book oh goodness um like we need to start telling people that ahead of time because it's a very heavy, big, it's a very heavy, big question. And I, and I feel like that's the response I get 100% of the time. Yeah. So I guess I, you know, it's hard for me to talk about this without like revealing spoilers. So I'm trying to like mm. do a, a jump a few mental hurdles. Uh, I think the goal of most of my books, uh, including this one, is to foster, you know, is to hopefully cultivate a sense of empathy. I think that certain characters in this book behave in ways that are not completely sympathetic. Um, but I think that these are the ways that people in pain behave sometimes. It's hard you know, it's not always, people don't always behave in likable, agreeable, or cooperative ways uh, when they're hurting or uh, have experienced trauma. But um, there's always a reason for how they behave. Uh, And um, if, you know, people walk away with a greater sense of curiosity or empathy, I'm always honored at that. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, the Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.